start into what I have for you. been thinking about this a good bit lately, about where we are in the Church of God International, where I am in my personal life, and where I'm going. Sometimes you have to reflect, look a little bit back into the past, look into the present, and also look into the future. If you want a title for this, it would be having the right goal, or where do we go from here, or are we headed in the right direction? Perhaps one of the most perspicacious, ingenious, inventive men I ever heard of, who used every one of the conceivable laws or keys or rules of success, was a Puerto Rican living in New York City. I mean, he had everything from inventiveness, creativity, ingenuity, imagination, careful preparation, dedication, determination, stick to and just plain guts. Living on the 47th floor of a brownstone apartment building in East 43rd, Manhattan, he walked into the bathroom one day, took a triple dose of sleeping pills, walked over to the window, slashed both wrists, poured a can of lighter fluid on him, struck a match, and jumped out. Now, he used every one of those things I said. He was inventive, he was ingenious, he had stick to he had absolute determination, and just plain guts. The only problem was he had the wrong goal. He wanted to kill himself. There's no reason to do that, but this was a man who was, he was absolutely obsessed with self-hatred. This was a man that was going to make sure. He left absolutely nothing to chance. What is your goal between now and next year? Here in another week or so, everybody will be making New Year's resolutions, and people will decide to take off a few pounds or quit drinking or quit chewing gum or whatever. They're, they're going to set certain little limited short-range goals for themselves and try to adhere to it. Recently, a lot of our people around here, including yours truly, have decided they need to take off a couple of inches around their waist and six or eight pounds they don't want. And continually in the United States, people are doing that. There must be a thousand and one different diets. My wife has bought the Scarsdale book and I gave a copy to her mother and sister, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Carnes, uh, Mrs. Uh, Sharp, and uh, yours truly are looking at the Scarsdale thing and beginning to be a little more cautious about what we eat and beginning to uh, attack the short-range goal of wearing some suits that have been hanging in the closet or some dresses that we haven't been able to get into for a few months. We'd like to save a little bit of money on our clothing bill. So that's a laudatory goal. Very good one. It can have some very long-range consequences like adding several years to your life and maybe forestalling an attack of some sort like heart trouble or a stroke or something like that. So there's, there's no better goal in the short term, of course than physical health and shedding weight and getting your cardiovascular in good shape. We have to have a whole series of different goals in life. Some of them are very illusory. It's very difficult for some of you to answer the question immediately, what is the goal of the Church of God International? And in the course of a month or so around here as we talk, as we function as brethren who come here once per Sabbath, maybe from far away, Longview or Gladewater, or even over in Fort Worth or Dallas or further away, sometimes it's easy to get a little bit sidetracked from the overall long-term, long-range goal and to think only in the short term. But that's a common failing. All of us have the myopia of looking only at short-term goals, sometimes a week in duration. That's something that seems to be wrong with human nature. I think it's time to take a few definitions in hand. First of all, success is not a goal in itself. Success is not something you will ever achieve. Success is not something that will ever be behind you. It is something which is illusory. It will always be pursued. It will always be just ahead and just around the corner, always in the future, it belongs always in the future and never in the present and certainly not in the past. Like someone might say, well, he is a very successful farmer. I've heard people talk like that. And along comes what happened recently in the midsection of the United States. And, of course, in one season or just one violent storm, insect damage, a freeze, a sudden thaw, flood, hurricane, tornado, whatever, and he's absolutely wiped out and he's no longer successful. Job was very successful 
until he was totally obliterated and wiped out because God allowed Satan the devil to test him. Someone might say he's a very successful banker, and then suddenly the bank collapses, or the economy enters a tailspin as it has, or a lot of people make a rush on the bank and withdraw all of their savings, or the SNLs fail, or what have you, and suddenly he is not so successful. Successful people I have known are perhaps in one way quite limited. It depends on what you mean by success. You have to characterize it. You have to define it. I knew and met Hewlett C. Merritt, who was probably the, one of the wealthiest men I've ever known. There are quite a few very wealthy men around Tyler that I know. And I'm not quite sure that I know that much about their private lives, but enough to know that not all of these people are as happy or as fulfilled they don't enjoy life anywhere near as much as I do, and they can buy and sell me a hundred times a day and twice on Tuesday. And it is incredible the amount of money, the amount of millions of dollars that some human beings can amass. Now, Hewlett C. Merritt, who owned Ambassador Hall, if you've ever visited Ambassador College out in Pasadena, and that building was bought at auction in about 1959, for less money than it cost him in 1905 to build the beautiful iron grillwork and concrete fence around the building. I forget exactly how many rooms there are. Three stories, one of which is basically underground, a full swimming pool, a full gymnasium in there, a huge big recreation room with big beams downstairs, and believe it or not, every room, and there must be at least 65 or 70 rooms, Every room in that building has a separate wood-burning fireplace. Every room. And every one of the rooms is a different hardwood. Like it'll be bird's-eye maple, or it'll be African teak, or it'll be Amazonian hardwood of some sort, or the Philippines mahogany, or European walnut. And every room will have hand-carved features to it. The wall coverings are either, either the solid wood paneling or silk, and the finest types of tapestry and things that could be put on the wall with huge big hand carved portals and pillars and so on. I don't know what that cost or back in 1901 to 1905, the years in which he built it, but it must have cost an absolute fortune even back then. Yet it was bought at auction for only a fraction of its cost after Hewlett C. Merritt had died. I met Hewlett C. Merritt, I think, when I was first out of the Navy in about 1952, and here was an elderly, gray-headed, stooped-over old man wearing a cashmere overcoat with a kind of a beaver hat being driven around in a big black Cadillac limousine. And he became the butt of all jokes in Pasadena because he would be seen going in the 5th Street and South Spring Street, Los Angeles, bargain basement stores to shop for old lampshades, second-hand shoes, and old articles of clothing that one would find in a Salvation Army rummage sale. When his home was opened up to people to inspect it, he had not only a full Napoleonic collection of busts and sculptures and papers and books and paintings and everything of that type, the swimming pool was completely covered over with an access down underneath it, covered with plywood and boards, and all of that was stored in the dry swimming pool plus up above it and stacked almost to the rooftops in room after room were old shoes and lampshades and cast-off bits and pieces of clothing. As long as it was a bargain, he wanted to buy it. And he was living like a pack rat in an absolute mansion that would just knock your eyes out if it had been properly furnished and, you know, uh, taken care of the way it should have been. His only, his only son, I think about age 25 or so, committed suicide when the father launched a lawsuit against the son over money. His wife died when he was only in his 60s, and he buried her in a solid sterling silver casket. Yet in his latter years he was a miserable recluse, unhappy, haunted, driven, couldn't sleep, trying continually to make more money. He outright owned several, I think up to 40-some corporations, and was the chief stockholder, how would you like to be that, of U.S. Steel. He owned some of the biggest ranches in the northern valley, the central valley of California, including vast pecan orchards or whatever kind of trees they were, fruit orchards I think mostly up there, and all kinds of farming lands and so on, plus all kinds of other companies that just too many to mention. And for all of that, 
He didn't know how to live. He wasn't happy and died an empty, lonely, embittered, miserable old man. J. Paul Getty is a name you might recognize. I know that every one of us have the same excuses. I mean, I tend to, and I've heard a lot of them, you know. Well, if it being rich is miserable, let me be miserable in style. And I like to be unhappy like he is unhappy because we think of things like private aircraft and yachts and big, beautiful homes and being able to travel to Switzerland and to South America and to the South Pacific or down to the Bahamas and just go where we want to, when we want to, do whatever we want to do, have all kinds of money to just experience all of the pleasures that we really lust after and that are paraded before our eyes in a never-ending stream on television and the movies and literature and so on. And of course in some of the shows that we see, we see highlighted that American gluttony and that lust for things like the fellow who has a high-pitched voice on the Price is Right show. And inevitably when the drapes part and the woman is standing there or the man and they say, a new car! His voice goes right through the ceiling, or sometimes two new cars, and steam comes out of their ears, and their eyes go like the, the proverbial tilt on the pinball machine, and they jump up and down. And here are people who, who become uncontrollable. My sister, in visiting us, calls this one show that comes on at about 6.30. Forget the name of the man. She calls him Kissy, because he's continually kissing all the women. And if there's five or six or five or six women, he kisses every one of them. So everybody there is going home with mononucleosis because he's just transferring from one to the other. You know, it's one of the guy doesn't have any disease there is. But anyway, it is a show where they're able to in, to earn about ten thousand dollars by certain guessing uh, things, by answering certain questions. And inevitably, when they win the ten thousand dollars, a part of the audience, the rest of the family, by the time they all get up there in a the stage, you're thinking if they divide that equally, they got one hundred and thirty dollars a piece. So what are they jumping up and down for? But anyway, they all rush up to the stage, and here they are, and they're just, you know, Joe was getting a little movement in a minute ago. They were all jumping up and down, and they're just like, when I was in the first grade, you did that, you know, you couldn't get your hand high enough to get the teacher's attention, so you would jump and throw your hand in the air if you knew the answer to something. Great rewards, and so little kids in the first, second, third grade jump up and down. You want to get an adult to do that? Let him win $10,000. Money. Or an automobile, which... Uh, probably can't afford and can't pay gas for. And I get to thinking, what's that going to do to their income tax? A lot of these people are going to probably have to sell that thing because there's an IRS man in the show. What is your name and address, did you say? I'm sure, because Uncle Sam is watching. They're monitoring those shows, I'm sure, because even people pulling the one-armed bandits that once in a while you hear of somebody earning a million dollars or something in New Jersey or Las Vegas, I'm sure there's an IRS man right there to get his name and address because the government wants to get their pound of flesh out of that. So it depends on what you mean by success. J. Paul Getty is a name you'll know in the oil business, and he made this statement. He said, I would give all of my millions for one successful marriage. Being a multimillionaire has its problems. Now, I know we have our excuses. We'd like to be a multimillionaire with all the problems because we would handle it differently than all these other people have. But he made that statement. I don't know how many times he was married. I think five, but I've forgotten, so don't quote me. But he must have been a very miserable man. Marilyn Monroe is one person you could equate with success. She became the most glamorous sex symbol, I guess, in the history of Hollywood. And to this day, there is a Marilyn Monroe cult, just like there's an Elvis cult or what have you. And people would actually go to the place where Elvis lived and walk around the grounds or stay out in the side and go hang a little medallion or a badge or a picture with her name on it and stand and weep at the gate because they virtually are idolizing these people. Yet, Elvis died of a drug overdose. He was a wretchedly miserable man, married to one of the most beautiful women that I imagine God has ever allowed to be born. If you've ever seen the girl, I can't think of her name now, she appeared on another television show for years. I mean, you can only get so beautiful, and then beyond that, there are just differences, and she's as beautiful as a woman can get. can't think of her name, except the last name was Presley. But... Well, you know, you can think of that after he married her, of course. But it still is. It still is Presley. And I can't think of her first name. Priscilla? Priscilla. With a name like Priscilla, how could she be beautiful? Anyway, uh, yeah, she was, she was a beautiful girl. Well, Marilyn Monroe was supposed to have been a very, very successful person. But, you know, there are tragic books written about her. I refuse to read them, and I won't watch that kind of thing, because to me it's a peculiar form of idolatry. But Marilyn died a failure. She wasn't, apparently, to all lights, 
deliberately trying to commit suicide. She was just skirting the edge of it, trying to quiet her mind because of the mind-blowing experiences she had been through in searching for the one great happiness in her life that was denied her. She had a terrible problem with a, a mother who was mentally ill, uh, not a stable household at all, and so on, and there was a terrible uh, problem of a whole string of men that took advantage of her and so on in her life. So you have to define what is success. Now, you know, my dad used to preach about that for years and years and wrote a booklet on the subject. You probably heard a lot about it. Well, let's try to equate it in our own personal terms. I don't think there is a one of you in this room, including yours truly, who is as successful as you would like to be. When I was on 300 radio stations and I was on 135 television outlets and I was the director of more than 21 overseas offices, and the president of two colleges, and the vice president of several corporations, three in all, as well as the member of the board, the executive vice president of all three, I was nowhere near as successful as I wanted to be, because I wanted to be on 2,000 radio stations and 500 television channels. I didn't care about the executive or the administrative duties that were placed upon me, and I didn't care about salary because I had arbitrarily taken a salary of $150,000, which was basically forced upon me, and put it back down to eighty-five, which is still a lot of money in today's economy, and said, I cannot take a salary that large, but it has to say something to someone. It doesn't say anything at all to the people involved, but to someone along the way, for someone to arbitrarily, by means of a telephone call, just say, I'm giving up $65,000 a year. I can't take that. I was not bitten with the bug that says money is success. The money was not the thing that mattered to me. Getting a message to hundreds of millions of people in the United States and all over the Western English-speaking world did matter to me. Being successful in getting that message, even to members of Congress and the leadership of the nation, did matter to me. But the only way we were going to do it was to absolutely saturate the American public via the mass media, and we never really succeeded in doing that. What is, what are, the goals of the Church of God International. If you were to put that down on a scrap of paper, how would you, in capsule form, say, what is the ultimate goal of the Church of God International? It would be difficult for me to put it in a very few words. I would say to preach the gospel of the coming kingdom of God as a warning and a witness to the world and to urge, to appeal to, to somehow be responsible for bringing as many people to repentance and conversion as possible as God gives us the help to do that. It's a two-part or a two-pronged goal. And then, of course, our responsibility is toward the flock as God adds that flock and to feed and to care for and nurture and nourish the flock. It would be difficult to put our goal down into a very, very simple three-word or four-word symbol or cliché or statement of some kind. It's a little more lengthy than that. But if you're looking at yourself personally, what is your attitude toward money? What is your own personal attitude toward the free enterprise system? Do you believe in the American system? Do you believe it is good? It is, something, is it something that is biblical? Or would the communist system where everybody shares equally, like you have a little hint, it seems, in the first chapter of Acts about people selling properties and giving up possessions and putting them all into a common pot, letting the apostles dole out to individuals as they had need, which almost appears to be a little bit of a, a collectivism, a little bit of a communistic form of sharing the wealth. Is free enterprise a godly system? Should you, as a member of God's church, knowing the truth of God, knowing basically the scenario of future prophecy, knowing what the goals of the church ought to be, should you be striving to make more money? Question. Are you content in your present economic bracket? Good question. How many of you are really totally content? Don't raise your hand, but I mean really content with what you have. Now, I know Jesus said to the Roman soldier, and be content with your wages. Do you know what he meant by that? Did he mean 
Look, you're being paid plenty. Don't ask for a raise. Don't try to be a corporal and then a sergeant and then a lieutenant and get more money or get to the point where you're an officer and you have a retirement program. Be content with being a private, a mercenary, some Carthaginian that can't speak anything, including Greek or Roman, very well. In the Roman army, no. The thrust of that statement was extort from no man. Don't use your position in the Roman army to take money from hapless members of a downtrodden society that is being occupied by Roman forces. He didn't mean stay where you are. No, I don't know a one of us who would be totally happy with exactly the amount of dollars we've got coming in. Is there anybody in the room that does not have financial troubles of some sort? Financial concerns, if not downright financial worries. I doubt it. I imagine all of us do to one degree or another. I want to deal with the biblical statements about success and about the right goal. Let's turn to Luke, the 12th chapter, and beginning in verse 13, see if we can answer some of these questions. Luke 12, beginning in verse 13, one of the company said, Master, speak to my brother. Now, this is interesting because I've had others come to me and ask similar questions. They want you to, to settle difficulties between members of a family they want to have you talk to some woman who's trying to divorce her husband and straighten her out. They want you to judge between people about economic or financial matters. Speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus said, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? Interesting response from Jesus Christ. Is the church to arbitrate in those matters? That ought to be a lesson for the ministry. Apparently it is not to some people. Some people tend to think that the minister is like an absolute dictator with absolute power and authority that extends all the way to the kitchen and the bathroom and what you put in the little vanity shelf so the minister's wife may walk into the home and search through your closets or your cupboards and find out if you women have makeup there or if you have uh, some kind of a food stuff you're not supposed to have or, or whatever. Maybe you even have uh, some kind of cloth that is mixed in the wrong fashion. This seems to indicate to me that Jesus says a minister is neither a judge or a person to arbitrate in economic disputes. That there are certain areas of a person's private life into which the ministry is not to intrude. That he's to be a helper of their joy and to lead them and direct them towards salvation, but not necessarily intruding into their private, financial, or personal lives. And he said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consists not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. Now, things are very important to us. I have certain things that I have to say I would feel badly about if I lost. I have a very, very beautiful rifle that I bought about 20 years ago. Now, if I'd walk home sometime and it's a custom-built Weatherby rifle, I got it when it wasn't, uh, probably it's worth five times more now than it was when I bought it. I got the only bonus that I ever got the entire history of the work, and I shared it with my wife and bought her some beautiful jewelry and bought myself a rifle. And if that were stolen, I, I would really feel badly about it. I know I'd get over it because I'd say, well, I got the old German World War I Army rifle or whatever. I got some other rifles. I could still go hunting. But I start to think about that. You know, of what value is something you possess and I had to learn that lesson because I lived in a home that God gave my wife and I that was perhaps the most beautiful home I've ever lived in, ever seen, been in, and in a lot of ways was just, well, it was, it was the apex because I didn't ever know of a single angle that I looked at in that home that I would have changed or would have been different. It was really a lovely home. When I went out there in a a couple of years later, I saw that they had built a huge four-story condominium of gray plaster material right behind that fence where I used to garden. And it just loomed up into the air and looked straight down into the back of that house. Every window in the back of that house faced out on the garden and the backyard. And we lived to the back of the house like so many Americans do. And, of course, pretty much shut off the part out toward the street. And now here are all these people living their lives, looking out the windows straight into this backyard. But anyway, I used to say that out of the pulpit, that even though I lived there, I don't think there was a single day that I didn't thank God for the, for the house, appreciate it, share it, have others in it, have all kinds of parties and, and groups of people over continually, and kind of play the game 
Am I willing to leave it? Am I willing to walk away from it? Can I get along without it? So that when that day came and when that event occurred, I never shed a tear. I didn't ever have any emotional upset. It didn't hurt me emotionally, although intellectually or let's say philosophically or whatever, there are certain things I would take issue with about the manner in which it was done and so on. It's not easy for someone to say, all right, get out of your house and just have that happen to you. But if you had undue love or affection or covetousness toward the abundance of the material things that surround you, it would just devastate you. And there are people to which that has happened. Or to whom? There are people who have been burned out who have committed suicide. There are people who have lost everything materially, as they did in the crash of 29, who simply jump out the Wall Street windows. They can't stand it. The idea of losing things is impossible to them. I think in one way the Navy taught me that lesson. There was often, often a, a time in my life when I would be out on liberty and I would be down to my last, literally, three cents. I remember one time going to 3rd Market Street and having nothing but exactly three pennies in my pocket. But I knew that out at Hunter's Point my aircraft carrier was anchored and I knew aboard that ship were three square meals a day in a bunk and my locker with my clothing in it and I didn't have a dime. I did not have... At that time, we had streetcars in San Francisco. I didn't have streetcar fare. It was only 10 cents to go from there to Hunter's Point, from 3rd and Market, where the streetcar turned. So I just had to stick out my thumb. But I always thought about that. Hey, I don't need anything. I'm not broke. You know, next payday is coming. I've got a place where I belong. And the, always the idea was that you don't need to possess anything. You're all right with a very, very little amount of money. Of course, I had security. I was in the Navy. They owned me, and they used very uncomplimentary terms to tell me about that every now and then to make sure I understood that they owned me. So he said, A man's life consists not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. And he spoke a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, Now, this is the case of a husbandman, maybe a fruit orchard or farmer or someone who is raising goods raising foodstuffs, and he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Now, here's where the rich man went awry. He didn't have the kind of goals we want to talk about today. He said, Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits, meaning store them and keep them for himself. And he said, This I will do. I will pull down my barns, where he stored all of the other fruits and vegetables and grains, and build greater and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Retire and live life to the hilt. Don't work anymore, but be easy. Lay back and have everything you want. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which you have provided? We've all heard the old statement, you can't take it with you. So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now the Bible tells us very clearly there is nothing wrong with laying up in store, nor is it wrong for a man to have enough to give to his children's children. It very plainly says that a wise man will lay up for his children's children, meaning that every one of us ought to be able not only to help out our own children, to help them get a start in life, but when we become grandparents, to be able even to do the same thing and to help along financially a grandchild. So there's a certain amount of material prosperity that God intends we all achieve. But laying up riches far more than we need, is condemned in the Bible. Being wealthy is not condemned. Being even rich is not condemned, as I intend to prove to you. Making money is not condemned. The free enterprise system is not condemned, but is upheld in the Word of God. So let's go a little further to Matthew, the sixth chapter, in verse 19. You'd be surprised when you look at the Gospels and many of the parables of Jesus Christ of how many of them have to do with money. Here in Matthew 6 and beginning in verse 19. Of course, this is in the Sermon on the Mount. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt. Let's say that you went into oriental rugs and you found out that a lot of moths had gotten into them and you've got priceless oriental rugs stored somewhere that are worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. 
or maybe you've got something else that will literally be destroyed. And I've heard fantastic cases like that where people have put uh, money, like actual paper bills, in a carton somewhere and buried it someplace and came back and it had completely mildewed and was totally destroyed. Or maybe rats had gotten in, gnawed it all to bits and made nests out of the money. You ever heard stories like that? Where people have had absolute fortunes of so-called mattress money. It's not earning interest, it's just tucked away, just hidden somewhere, and of course it's totally destroyed and they don't have any access to it. And that's the end of it. Or where thieves break through and steal. You know, I did a lot of programs on that subject. I forget exactly how much money I had before me one time, but it's the biggest amount of money I ever saw. It was several million dollars on the table right there in hard cash. And I'm talking about gold and stacks of huge, big Krugerrands and Mexican uh, gold pesos and so on. And one of the gold dealers had been contacted and to do a couple of our programs on television about money and about gold and silver and to pass out some advice about buying gold and silver and so on on the story of success, they brought an armed guard with a truck or maybe two armed guards over there and they actually brought sacks of that stuff in and carefully put it down in big piles. Maybe you saw the program, maybe not, but I was sitting at the studio desk in Pasadena in the television studio with stacks of gold and silver and money all around me, an enormous amount of money. And then of course one of the pictures was a slow motion spinning of the, of the silver dollar and I said, take a good long look and maybe the last one you'll ever see, and so on, and talked about the deterioration of our money supply and so on. I have heard of so many cases of people who go into that type of thing. And remember that gold does not work for you. Gold is very volatile. It is totally speculative. It earns no interest. It costs a great deal of money to store. You must pay the assay costs both times transacting either buying and or selling. And there's always the potential of theft. So a lot of people are suspicious of banks. They think, now, I'm godly. I'm suspicious that he's rotten bankers. I believe it's a bunch of Jews, maybe only three or four of them, Rothschild and a few others, including David Rockefeller, and they hide out in a few attics somewhere in Europe or Brussels or maybe over here in New York, and they are secretly running the whole world, and they're trying to get what I've got. Here's somebody making 12000 a year, and he thinks the Jewish bankers are after him. And I think, you know, to myself, well, how many steaks can a man eat in, in a year, you know? And how many cars can you drive at once? And how many private jets can you own? And just what do you want out of life when you are, as we saw interviewed on TV recently, one of the Rothschilds up in his 80s owning some of the uh, wine vineyards over in France? And are they really secretly running the world? Well, that's one of the conspiracy theories. But the idea of laying up mattress money is inherently wrong. Laying up wealth or treasures in some secret place is inherently wrong, it says in the Bible. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. How nervous would you be if you were the pervert? Well, let's say you're not a thief, but maybe you're just like the guy down in Houston that found the Brinks sack in the road. That's the American dream. That only happened to one man in the history of the country that I know of. Recently, there was a ten-plus million dollar robbery in New York City has eclipsed every other robbery in the history of the United States. The one that was biggest before that was about $5 million when they stole the money out of the Kennedy Airport where it was being transshipped to Europe. But here recently, if you read about it, uh, they broke into, what was it, a bank or something in a vault and actually went through the floor or the roof or something and they got actually 50 and 100 unmarked bills and food stamps, all negotiable, food stamp certificates in the amount of ten-plus million dollars. The American dream, of course, is finding a bag of money in the street. Well, there was this black man who I think was a janitor years ago. You may remember the story. He was driven out of town. And literally, it did happen. Now, my own opinion about that is that some other car was there, and I'd love to see somebody make a movie out of that. And just as the bag tumbled out, they were waiting to grab it, and this guy came along and picked it up and said, Oh, what's this? And I can just see these three thieves who were working with the guy in the truck. It was an inside job trying to rip off the armored car company, saying, Oh, look at that idiot has got our bag of money. I mean, it's just impossible for me to believe that an armored car employee just didn't know that a bag of a million or so tumbled out the back into the truck. It just is absolutely unbelievable to me. So anyway, the guy found the money, and he didn't know what in the world to do with it, and eventually he ended up turning it in. And they drove him out of town. They threatened him. They persecuted his kids at school. 
They would drive by and shout epithets and call him filthy names driving by his home. Nobody could stand it because vicariously, putting themselves in his place, they would have gone immediately on around the world on a trip. Now just imagine yourself, what would be your mental attitude? You're on your way to Europe, you found a Brinks bag in the street, and you put it in a big, locking, black briefcase. And you've got a briefcase about that thick and about this long, like you've seen in movies and TV, stacked with hundred and thousand dollar bills. Now you're going into the airport and you're carrying the briefcase. Just, just walk through the, the situation. Here, may I take that for you, sir, says the airline stewardess. Oh, no, thank you very much. I'll, I'll hang on to that. You know, can you imagine mentally what you would be going through if you were walking along carrying that kind of money on you? You would be scared half to death. Scared of losing it? I mean, you wouldn't dare put it down. You'd be standing there with a thing like this uncomfortably trying to sign things and, and go through customs and everything. You wouldn't even put it down at your feet. You wouldn't dare. You would be absolutely miserable. So we can read a lot of other things about this, about money, but I think that suffices. That is not a goal in itself. I'll show you a little later some of the things that could be done with it because money is power. Money is authority, and it can be used for a great deal of good. It costs money to buy food. It costs money to buy clothing. It costs money to buy shelter. It also costs a great deal of money for medical expenses, for nursing care, for care of the elderly, for care of orphans, for care of crippled and mentally deficient children. All of that costs a great deal of money. So does television, so does radio, so does the printing press, so does your rental, so does a quart of milk and a dozen eggs, so does gasoline to go in your car. It all costs money. A couple of anecdotes concerning equating success only with earning money, which is the American idolatry, and it's absolutely directed in the wrong direction, as we will see by another parable in a moment. It was like the fellow who had a son who was a doctor. He was in his mid-fifties, and his son was about thirty, and he had a doctor for a son. So his neighbor said, how's your son the doctor doing? And he said, well, fine, he's really doing well now. He's actually beginning to make enough money in his practice that he can afford to tell some of his patients there's nothing wrong with them. You know, that, that, that sort of smacks of the truth, because I know a doctor that committed suicide. I won't go into detail, but a man that felt so absolutely frustrated over doling out little sugar-coated pills to old ladies who came to him for nothing more than the companionship when he knew nothing was wrong and he didn't dare send them down the street for fear the other doctor would give them something that was harmful to them. He actually left a, a lucrative practice and ran off and volunteered in his mid-forties to join the Navy and to try to sew back injured veterans in, in Vietnam and to, to work in a hospital ship off Vietnam because he couldn't stand, he was a person of certain high moral values, and he couldn't stand the dishonesty of the medical profession. I don't know if Jack ever sprung this one on you or not, Jack Mitchell. He might have. Don't, don't know where I got this one exactly, whether he's heard it before, he might have, because he's in sales. But it was like you say to a salesman, well, to what do you owe your success as a salesman? And he says, well, the very first words I utter when the lady of the house comes to the door, oh, what are those? I always say, miss, is your mother home? And boom, you know, because flattery, it seems, will get you everywhere. And you heard about the successful man who retired with $3 million, $3 million for his retirement fund. And every bit of it was due to hard work, strict attention to duty, ingenuity, stick-to-itiveness, thrift, integrity, determination, honesty, and his uncle who died and left him $2,998,500. <laughs> There are people like that we think of as successful. You know, I never did have long-range goals financially. And I look back now from my vantage point and wish I could impart, especially to those of you in your teens and twenties, of whom there are precious few in this room, a little bit of wisdom. If I had known when I first got out of the Navy in 1952 what I know now, I would not at all be concerned about next year or the year after that or the year after that. I wouldn't be wealthy because I believe inherently that is wrong. I wouldn't be rich with treasures laid up. But I would be able to give my sons a start in life and would be far better able to help them get a good start than I presently am. 
and if and when grandchildren came along, I would be far better equipped to help them than I currently am able. I think a lot of the rest of you can say the same thing. You can think of the way our economy has changed. You can think of where you lived. You can go back to the old home site. You can see how it's developed and it's built and property in those old days would have gone for $10 an acre, selling for $2,000 an acre, and lots and pieces of property that were out in fields are now on busy street corners where there's a shopping center, and on and on go these things that we have thought about in times past. Decisions we could have made, we could have saved, we could have purchased a, a very important piece of property and hung on to it for 20 solid years. Now, very late in life, we try to wise up, we try to make some of those decisions, and it's a little bit late to do so. It is impossible to talk to most 20-year-olds about an IRA, about a retirement fund, just as it's about impossible to talk to young couples newly married about making out a will. High school children are not goal-oriented. You cannot see youngsters basically constructing an educational format in high school around certain things they've determined to do. By the time they're in college, some of them, if they want to go on a medical or law school, they do have a goal but probably in the first 12 years of their formal education, they did not. I want to ask the question, if you had it to do all over again, would you, like me, want to be a little better off than you are? Would you want to own at least one home, own your own home, outright, free and clear, not a dime due on it? Oh, I sure would. How would you like to own not only that, but a couple of hundred acres of pretty good farmland somewhere? Now, that's not beyond what I think Almighty God would intend. I don't think any farmer who owns outright a couple of hundred acres or even a few sections is an evil sinner in God's sight. I'm not talking about his personal life. I'm talking about just the fact of owning property and being basically what we would call well-to-do, not having to struggle every single week or two weeks to make ends meet and to pay his bills and people coming along and threatening to shut off his water and lights and electricity and telephone, which happens. We have a lot of families in the church who from time to time are looking at whether they can afford the phone or the newspaper and whether they've got to put off the refrigerator payment to make the rent and whether they can afford to drive a car that is really safe or whether they've got some old clunker that might fall apart at any moment, which is eating them up in repairs because they simply can't afford a better car. I know a lot of people in the church that can't afford to buy a car that costs more than $450. They're not good, and that's, that's payments for some people, but that's the total amount of money some people can put into a car. I'm saying, is that right? Is that good? And is that the way God really wants it? If you're in that condition, are you better off spiritually than you would be if you owned a couple of sections of land in prime farm country? I say no. Now, we know this scripture, so I won't turn to it and read it in 3 John 2. Beloved, I wish above all things that you may prosper and be in health even as your soul prospers. He's speaking even as you spiritually are prospering in God's truth. I wish that you may prosper, your life will be full, and that you will be in health. Something we can talk about a little later on. There are a lot of other scriptures in the Bible about that. I want to turn to the 10th chapter of Mark and ask the question, is there anything inherently wrong with being rich? You know, last time that I spoke, I went through Lazarus and the rich man in the 16th chapter of the book of Luke and about the rich man who totally ignored the terrible plight of the poor Lazarus, the poor poverty-stricken ill or sick man out at his gate. In the 10th chapter of Luke and beginning in verse 17, is a very important story. Now, is this what I want? I'm sorry, did I say Mark? or I said Mark, didn't I? Mark 10, and then I said Luke the second time. Mark 10 and verse 17. He was gone forth into the way, and there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good Master, what shall I do? Matthew 19, 17 is the parallel account of this as well, which says, If you will enter into life, keep the commandments, as we know. And we quote that part of it time and again. And Jesus said, Why do you call me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Do you know the commandment? Do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not. What command is that? Well, that's having to do, of course, with false witness, coveting, cheating, stealing. It is, in a sense, 
taking the last six commandments about cheating and stealing from your brother and just putting them in general terminology. Honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these things I have observed from my youth. Now, he was a man of honesty. He was a law-abiding man, keeping the law of God in the letter. He must have been successful because he was wealthy. He had applied the laws of God, and obviously he had applied whatever laws of success, because even if you say he inherited his money, he at least still had it, and he hadn't lost it yet. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him. Now, this is a special category. Try to remember that. This man was invited to become, eventually, probably, an apostle. Jesus really had an affection for this person. There was something about him. Maybe his magnetism, his attitude, his appearance. He was a son of Israel. He was a young man who was probably quite able and had a lot of qualities that Jesus saw, which said Jesus loved him and said unto him, One thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come the prosperity that God wants us to enjoy. And will some of these things be added the more we fine-tune and sharpen the focus of the one great goal that is at the end of our lives, which is the kingdom of God? Take no thought for the morrow, meaning worry, concern, or anxious thought. For the morrow shall take thought of the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. And that is certainly the truth. So the mind, the attitude, the actual goal is the key. Is there anything wrong when I talk about money being power, money being authority? Is there anything wrong with the desire on your part to give others a job, to have, to be able to give? Is there anything wrong with giving, serving, sharing, with righting wrongs? What about this lady who recently, and it's now national, was, I believe, her daughter or son, I forget which. I've seen her interviewed many times. She's the head of MAD, which you've heard a great deal about lately if you've watched any television at all. Mothers Against Drunk Driving, M-A-D-D. An American housewife who had just had it with these idiots who will become absolutely drunk and get behind the wheel of a car, and we've seen them. Not a one of you in this room has not seen a person careening down the road, barely able to manage a car, and you knew that is an absolute drunk. And not a one in the room that hadn't swerved at a time or another to avoid getting hit by one of them. And probably all of us in the room know of people sooner or later who have died. In my own case, two twins, Ronald and Donald Cokes, with whom I grew up, and I've talked about this before, I'll make it short, who... Uh, lived in Eugene, Oregon, and a family moved in there from um, Nebraska, and the two girls were so close, a girlfriend that was not of that family moved with the girl next door, and here were these identical twins, you couldn't have told them apart, they began dating these two girlfriends, one of them was just married and the other one was about to be, when my wife and I in 1953 went up into Eugene and I looked up some of my old high school buddies, they'd been in the Navy before I was in the Atlantic fleet and I was in the Pacific. Well, only a day or two after we were back home in Temple City, I got a phone call from a girl up there in Springfield, Oregon, now a woman with a family of her own, and told me that both Ron and Don Cokes and the wife and the fiancé that were due to be married in a couple of days were killed by a drunk driver who had completely lost control of a car, hit the big, wide, separated area between a four-lane highway, became airborne, and hit right at about the windshield level of that car, and just obliterated those four young people. They might not have died instantly, but they died before they could even get them to hospital. All four of them. My brother Dick, well, it wasn't drunkenness, I don't think, in that case. I think it was just inattention. But, you know, people who've been killed by an automobile accident, many of you do. This woman because of her outrage over this, just set it as a goal. I'm going to do something about it. Anything wrong with what she's doing? Absolutely not. She is going to be single-handed. Well, not single-handedly. She started it, so you've got to give her the credit. But now she is getting tens of thousands to rally behind her with the very laudatory goal of slapping drunk drivers in jail immediately and having the stiffest possible penalties for people getting behind the wheel of a car when they're drunk. Now, I'm not talking about making money. 
But I will guarantee you that the woman is on the right track. She's at, she's headed toward a great and a laudatory goal, and she is going, her life is fulfilled. In her own way, she is paying a debt to her dead child and to thousands of others, and she has a sense, which is most important, of worth and of value, of contribution to humanity that few people ever achieve. And when she is old and gray and sitting in a rocker and maybe about to die, she's going to look back and she is going to be heralded as a woman who single-handedly changed the state legislature's minds of state after state after state in the United States and enacted new legislation against drunk driving in this country. She had a terrific goal. Years ago, when the college had the right of eminent domain, I knew this parable, I won't turn and read to it, it's take too much time, in Luke 16, 1 through 13, about the unrighteous mammon. Make of yourselves friends of the unrighteous mammon, and when it fail, they, meaning the angels in Christ, may receive you into their habitations or houses. And it's a little bit obscure. But the point is that you use the unrighteous mammon, the money, your salary, uh, property, income, taxes, etc., the entire economic system of this society of ours, in a very wise fashion to make friends and to do as much good as you can. If you had the goal of setting up a home for orphans, is that a good goal? How are you going to do that? How would anybody in this room, how would we as the Church of God International take on the additional burden of feeding a hundred people every Thanksgiving of poor folks? How would we operate a home for crippled children or a nursing home for elderly and poor? Back in Pasadena years ago when we had the right of eminent domain in the college and there were some old poor people, it was one old black woman, a lot of people thought she was the butt of jokes and I couldn't go along with that. They called her the bald eagle because she would sit on her front porch and all she could do was watch the traffic go by. An elderly lady that was completely bald. And the college wanted to buy her home. Well, they did for about twice of what it was worth. But I told my dad at that time, I said, Dad, if we wanted to do something that would virtually put us on the map and earn an awful lot of friends and win a great deal of respect in Pasadena, California, we would buy one of these older homes up here, a great big home, and have our deacons and our men get in there and refurbish it and fix it up and move a lot of these elderly black people in there, and we would run a church-sponsored home for these elderly widows and poor people. And if we would do that, and we would just sponsor it as a gesture, as a church, we would be applying this principle of using the mammon of unrighteousness, that when it failed, they may receive you into their houses and so on. Well, we never did do it, but I still think it was a right temporary goal. If you wanted to feed or clothe the poor, if you wanted to shelter and protect little crippled children or orphans, that is a laudatory goal. Question, how are you going to do that when some of us can barely feed and clothe ourselves? I'm saying that the Bible urges us to be successful financially. It really does. And there aren't any excuses of saying, well, we're God's poor or God just didn't work it out that way for me. I'm not supposed to do that, and especially this late in life. Let me tell you about a success story a lot of you know about, and I don't know all the details. young gentleman up here years ago was being rather put upon by the television department. For some reason, some people didn't like him. Well, I did. He was musical, had a very good voice. His wife is a good pianist. I was doing a whole series of articles for the magazine on ecology and on evolution and on creation. And I had need of producing our own first-class photographs, some of them unobtainable from other sources. I wanted, for example, some pictures on desert ecology. And so I sent this young man with a van and with friends, and they went out and they camped in the Arizona and eastern Colorado deserts and so on and took fantastic pictures of little birds that lived in saguaro cactuses and so on, or cacti is a plural, and all kinds of wild animals and so on. Big, beautiful color photography that we saw in a magazine that went out to millions of people. And I created a job for him to protect him from some other people who were out to get him. I don't know what happened, but in the, in the long term, he was finally fired or let go from that job, and I lost track of him. His wife apparently was quite dexterous with a needle. Apparently, she really knew how to make little clothing patterns, cut them out of paper, and make clothes for little dolls, just little tiny doll clothing. And she was really good at it. And she did that, 
And I guess what she did is advertise and begin to let a few people know about it in a very small way. I really don't know exactly the details as to whether they started in a little local newspaper or some rather limited regional magazine, but it was, it was small. And a lot of orders came in, and she, with her own scissors and her own pencils and her own, you know, equipment at home and her own room where they lived up here in Big Sandy, began to send out these patterns. Well, as time went on, I can't even tell you today what they make or how many people they employ, but Jerry Gentry and his wife are now in the multi-million dollar category. They are one of the biggest customers of IBM here in Tyler. They have a huge mailing list. They advertise in major women's magazines like, I guess, Good Housekeeping and Ladies Home Journal and on and on, and huge big color ads all over the United States. I'm tempted to say they have a mailing list up more than a million, but I don't really know that. But they employ a whole lot of the members of the church up there. I don't know how many people they employ, but it must be at least in the teens, if not 20 or 30 or more, isn't it? 175? See, now, I'm, I'm really... That's a typical Armstrong minimization. A uh, hundred, that's, that's fantastic, that is. Can you imagine? That has put Big Sandy on the map. Really, more than anything we ever did. A hundred and seventy-five employees, that's, un, that's fantastic. They're far bigger than the Church of God International. They really are. I mean, an annual income, they probably got a monthly income as big as our annual income with 175 employees up there. An idea that a housewife had. Now think about that, some of you people. I want to bring this to a close very quickly. But what are some of your short-term goals? I have a short-term goal I'm working on, and I, I want to reduce a little bit of weight, and I want to get some things straightened out in my personal life. And thanks be to God, He's helping me, and I'm making some progress. But let's say that your desire is to simply reduce a little bit. Some of you are, and some are doing great at that, by the way. You want to learn to write. Maybe you want to take up painting. You want to make some money. I could go on and on about how you ought to get some books and journals and magazines and study in that field and just actually go out and do it, you know, just do it to make more money if you want to. But you would have to write your personal goals down, I think, on a piece of paper and then outline every single one of them and come to how you're going to do about it and then read and study in that particular field and just put one foot down in front of the other one step at a time and decide you are going to do it. I have a little private goal I like to do. I'd like to set up a family business at some time, and I may get around to it. One time a guy handed me one of those. It's a rock, a flat rock, about that big around, real flat, and it says on it, T-U-I-T, to it. And on the back it says, round to it. You've been saying all your life you're going to get around to it. Here it is. Here is a round to it. And that's about as close as I got to my idea I had. But... Uh, I was sitting at the television studio desk one time, and I got an idea, and so I went out and I found a, a plow share, I mean a, a plow, just the whatever you call it, the kind of a plow you put in the ground. And I asked a guy who's now dead, who was a very skilled worker, if he would take that thing and buff all the rust off of it. I went down to the Golden State Arms and I bought about a dozen Navy sabers and some old World War I English sabers and a bunch of American and other type bayonets. Bought about eight or nine sabers and about six or eight bayonets. And I wrote out a sketch and I designed it, drew a picture of it, and I told him, I want to make a lamp where we chop off these sabers and the hilt of the sabers makes a pedestal for the base of a lamp and each of the sabers just tapers off till it comes right down into and contacts the metal on the plow and then by you just melding them down, I want great big dripping pieces of metal as it appears to be melting right into this lamp. And then on the top, I want two bayonets up and two down. So we cut them off and put the halves of the bayonet visible, and the two bayonets are perfectly untouched up, and all these sabers down below and so on, and the lamp, solid walnut base about that big around, and then a coffee-sized base about that big around, the lampshade, the whole thing's about that tall, sits right beside my leather chair in my home. And around the base of it, it says, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And it's a beautiful lamp. Then I went down and I bought three old World War I. I bought a Finnish and a Swedish and I believe a Russian uh, bolt-action rifle. And I had him design stacked rifles in three, again with a coffee table size and the butts put in a floor plate of, of walnut, and then the shade over the top. And the rifles still work. They're not even plugged, but they are uh, put together, you know, welded in, in a fashion that they stand together as a lamp. I got to thinking. 
I could make hundreds of those lamps, buy hundreds of those plowshares and all kinds of things in metal, and find me a guy that's really good with, with welding and with spot welding and so on, and just create every single one of them with a different idea and advertise them in sportsmen's magazines and, and mechanics illustrated magazines that men would read and so on that would want some real rough-looking lamp like that. Everyone an absolute original creation, no telling how much money they'd sell for. That's a kind of an idea. I don't have time to do it, but you know, I want to do that as a family business sometime. That's just a dream. It's an idea. Now, some of you that have time, you know, that might be different. If I had nothing but time on my hands, I think I would actually do that and set up a program where I would be in business manufacturing lamps. But there are all kinds of ideas. I've heard so many success stories of people who have just gotten an idea, like Mrs. Jerry Gentry did, and become millionaire. Now, I don't know what they do with the rest of their money. I do know they probably are heavy tithers. And if the truth were known, they may be keeping the church going by practically them and three others. Who knows? I don't know. But uh, I'm saying that there are methods by which any one of you at any time, if you will apply those principles, can break out of your present income stratum and achieve a much higher one. I was going to turn to Philippians 3, 7 through 14. I'll simply quote it. We know that scripture, and it says that I press for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And he said, I count not myself to have apprehended, but that he is counting everything in the past as dung, and he very clearly has the one great big goal in mind. He never forsakes that. But there are a lot of other short-term, short-range goals that are laudatory ones and if you had the motive that is not money, it is not merely for you to make more money, but for you to do more good, for you to hire more people, for you to feed or clothe or help more people, for you to even help your neighbor or your brother or your children, your fellow brethren in the church and the church itself. Whatever your goals are, if it is a giving goal, the only way you can give is to have to be able to give. You can give at whatever level you are, like the widow that only had two mites. She gave. And God says it will be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and overflowing will men give into your bosom. If we will begin to do that, one step at a time, knowing we will never quite arrive, but we will always be on the way, then maybe we will be able to say sometime when someone comes up to us and says, What's going on? We can say, I am.